Bishop Todd, it's all yours. All right, well, I'm gonna, good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. Looks like we've had some, a few other people join us and some dear friends. Martin, to see you again. How lovely, he was one of the first people I met there. So we're going to, to take a, a, another look at the disciples on the Emmaus Road. I, I know what you're probably thinking. Only last week, an eminent local Bible scholar covered this same passage. Todd, aren't you afraid that you're going to have nothing to add? Well, I, I do recognize there's a real risk here. Um, but I think the risk is, is, is worth it. Because this passage is just so powerful. Uh, every, every year it just speaks to me afresh. Um, but I think for those of us, <laughs> meaning the world over, who have been in an international pandemic, an international emergency, for um, well over a year now, it seems to me that this passage speaks to us um, very uniquely just where we're at. And, and that's what God's word does to us. It always speaks to us just where we're at. God has done wonderful things in the past. He holds out wonderful promises in the future. But the moment where God is most active is this present moment right now. I see lots of pointing. Can you everybody hear me? I wasn't sure if it was people pointing at things. I thought maybe my mute button was on. So let's play it out like this. I think Jared took you through the meat of the passage last week. I'll try to take you through some of its milk uh, this week. Let's take a look at this. The passage begins with two disciples heading away from Jerusalem. And the passage says they were talking with one another about all these things that had happened. When Jesus died, something within the heart of these disciples ground to a halt. Something inside of them was deeply affected. Their entire outlook on life was affected. Their joy in life took a nosedive. Interestingly, they felt the need to talk about this. And so this, this uh, the language of conversation, uh, dialogue, talking, it's, it's a word that comes up repeatedly in the passage. They just felt like they needed to unpack this experience with one another, with a trusted friend. And I think that in, in some parallel ways, I, I think, uh, Life can often for us not turn out the way that we expect. This isn't the way that they thought things were going to turn out with Jesus. They thought that he would just be a kind of on an ascending um, a climb to more and more influence and more power and more glory. That's what they expected. And it didn't turn out like that for them. And so some part of the, their hearts feel crushed and, and despondent 
by the way that things actually turned out. And maybe a year into a pandemic, maybe you feel a bit like that. Like it had a profound effect on you. And, and I think that this is a time where we maybe need to take a few clues from this passage, which is um, find someone, a, a trusted someone that you can talk about this with. You know, sometimes when someone says to me, how are you doing? And I, uh, I don't really know till I get talking about it. That probably sounds like a, a typical man. Um, and I, I think that as a year into the pandemic, we, we need to give people a chance to talk. And I think that we need to hone the skills of listening. These disciples felt like they were undone by the death of their Lord, and they really just needed to talk about it. The Bible says that while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near. And I'd like you to notice with me how it was that Jesus approached them. He didn't interrupt their conversation. He didn't think it insignificant. He didn't interrupt it. He just drew near to them, walked alongside of them, listened to them as they talked, and he didn't cut it short because it was important to him, this dialogue. In fact, he, he didn't even make his identity known to them. His, their eyes, the Bible says, were kept from recognizing him. And this raised a couple really important questions we may want to consider. Number one, is it possible that Jesus can be very present to you in tough, disappointing times? And that you and I could be in almost entirely unaware of it. And, and I think this story speaks to that. It actually gives us evidence to that. That these disciples were, as it were, focused on their sadness, focused on their loss. Jesus is absolutely near, could not have been near, and they are not aware of it. And I encourage you to take heart from that story. Sometimes you may need to tell yourself, my life has been affected by things. I, I don't always sense Jesus' presence near, but I know with certainty from the gospel that he is every moment nearer than I have eyes to see. Nearer than I realize. And that was certainly true for these disciples. Jesus could not have been more alive. He could have not have been more closer. He could not have been more interested in them. And they're altogether unaware. Secondly, we may want to ask, why were their eyes kept from recognizing him? If I had more time, I'd love to be able to dwell on this. I'm sure Jared touched upon it in some detail last week. But, but let, me, let me posit one reason. I think it's because a really important process was happening and Jesus did not want to cut it short. He didn't want to truncate a really important process. Sometimes people just need to talk. And they need to, as it were, get some things off their chest. And there's things that are that are down in the deep places of their heart that need to percolate up. And they'll only do that if someone is really listening well. 
Notice the way that Jesus joins in this dialogue. He asked, what is this conversation that you're holding with one another? He knew that they needed to talk it out. He didn't cut short their conversation. In fact, he joined in the conversation. He asked a key question. And somehow that question seemed to take these disciples beyond the things that had happened, the facts. And it took them to a different place, which is, how were they affected by the things that had happened? Seems like a fairly innocent question. But we knew that we know that it impacted them because the Bible says they just stopped walking. And they looked sad. Sometimes the right question from the right person can just halt us in our path. You live in a community where this is not uncommon. Wanda is the, is the asker of key questions. She, she like wrote the book on significant questions that halt you in your tracks. And, and, and when Jesus asked the question there, so their, their entire body changes. They, they, they don't know how to go further. They just stop. And, and, and they don't have the words at first, but their face says it all. They look sad. The, the Greek word here means they're, they're, they look gloomy. They look despondent. I'm sure you've noticed that sometimes you don't know you're not okay until someone who really loves you say, are you okay? You want to say, well, I was okay before you asked me, until you asked me that darn question. Because sometimes we're not always aware that we're not okay. Or recognizing it can be difficult. But when someone who really loves us says, are, are, are you okay? It, then it makes us take stock. Stop. Check in on ourselves. Now, I want you to notice here, before Jesus turned their sadness, before he turned their gloom into joy, he first helped them to speak about their sadness. It's a key part of the story. He didn't just change them in a moment. There's a process here. He let them talk about it. He listened so that they could bring up from the depths of their heart what was there and turn it into a conversation. And so there's a question. Do you, do you talk to Jesus about your sadness? Have you ever thought that he might like to hear from you on the matter. Because if your heart desires intimacy with God, then intimacy requires the openness of heart, a deep sharing of the heart. This is part of what we do in prayer. It's where God Amongst other things, God gives us his ear. He walks alongside us. He listens intently. He leans into what we're saying. What we're saying matters to him. And you feel like you could tell him everything. In the deep places of our heart, we 
we bring up as a as a form of offering to him. When Jesus asked this question, one of the disciples named Cleopas says, how, how could you not know? Uh, you, you must be like a foreigner to these places if, if you don't know what we're talking about. But again, it's Jesus is asking questions, not because he doesn't know the answer, because he wants to hear their conversation. And so they sort of say, Jesus of Nazareth, that's who we're talking about. He was a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And now some woman of our company, company claimed that they have seen a vision of angels and they, who said that Jesus was alive. I want, to, I want you to notice a couple of things. These disciples don't just feel sad. They feel justified in their sadness. They are committed to their sadness. They are stuck in their sadness. Life has not turned out the way they hoped. And that disappointment is having no small effect upon them. Know that as the Lord, as I brought my own heart to God many years ago for healing, though if there's one thing I was probably healed above of anything else, it's probably acute disappointment. 12, 14 years ago, however many years ago, when Lawrence and Wanda and I and others first learned that Jesus doesn't only heal bodies, he also heals hearts. That was like a that was a new thing for us. So if you were to ask me, then what did Jesus heal you of, Todd? Chronic disappointment. Off the charts, acute disappointment. That life did not turn out the way that I thought. And I had no way of understanding or interpreting that. And it made my heart very sad. That's why this story has meant so much to me. It was as though a dark cloud had gathered over the hearts of these two men. And that dark cloud was blocking out the memory of their bright and happy days with Jesus and blocking out any sense of hopeful expectation that they could have a great future with Jesus. And so the big question, how did Jesus bring them out of that place? How did he bring me out of a place of chronic disappointment and sadness? How did he bring them out of this place where it feels like their whole world was disrupted? They, they felt like they had nothing good, really good to look forward to. How did Jesus bring them out of this place? It's a great question because this is one story that ends in a dramatically different way than it starts. It starts with sad hearts, and it ends with burning hearts. You understand why process is important? You know why I said why it's a process that Jesus didn't want to just cut short, but he actually involved himself in? And so how did he move them from sad hearts to burning hearts? 
I think four things happen in the remainder of this story. I'll only have time to summarize. Four things Jesus did that these disciples really needed. And, and maybe they're some things that you and I might really need. Let's take a look at them very briefly. Jared can expound upon them later. Or, or, or one of your other local preachers. So, so four things. Number one, this, this may not strike you as a gift, but it was a gift. The first thing he said is, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Now, if someone said that to me, I might not immediately think of it as a gift. I may not immediately think of it as an expression of love for me. So notice, Jesus does not intend these words as an insult, and the disciples don't take it like that. They're not affronted by these words. It's important to understand what is meant by the word foolish here. If you're ignorant, it means you're unaware of the truth. If you're foolish, it means you are unaccepting of the truth. Not unaware. It means you are unreceptive to the truth. It doesn't mean you don't know. It means you do not want to know. It means you're not welcome to the truth. It means you can have every good reason in the world to believe, but you are slow of heart to believe. Something on the inside, not on the outside. You have plenty of good reason to believe. There's a resistance on the inside to believe. So notice with me here, good people from their community, good, honest, people of integrity, people they'd walked with and knew for years, claimed to have evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead. And these two disciples do not think of it as credible. People who have never lied in, in all their years that they've known them, who have never acted in an untrustworthy way, Universally, all of them claim to have evidence that Jesus raised from the dead. These two disciples are dismissive with it. That means they're, more, they're not just sad. They are stuck in their sadness. They are preferring their sadness or their sad take on things. They're not actually open to the truth of Jesus' resurrection. And so this is the very first way that Jesus loves them, by helping them to understand that the greatest obstacle to their joy is not on the outside of them, but on the inside of them. Choosing this. The obstacle was in the wrong, their, their wrong way of seeing, perceiving things, of seeing things. You ever seen something in a really wrong way or seen someone in a really wrong light? I've taken the completely wrong take on a situation hundreds of times, at least on the inside, where I felt like I just thought I saw a situation rightly. And, and, I, and I didn't. So then I have to ask myself, was I even open? to seeing it in a different way. 
sometimes we are unaware of the truth of God, but sometimes we are unreceptive to it. And so the first thing, if we're going to move around a sad heart to having a burning heart, is to ask God first and foremost to give us an open. To give us a receptive heart. A welcoming heart. A malleable And to show us those areas where we may be resistant to his truth and are not aware of it. Number two. What's the very next words Jesus says? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? These sad disciples genuinely hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. They genuinely believed he was the one. But they wanted him to redeem Israel their way and not his way. They didn't want him to redeem it by his death. They didn't believe that he could redeem it through loss and through suffering. They thought that the, the advent of the Messiah meant that we could kiss the days of loss and suffering goodbye. Whereas God was wanting to redeem such things. In what way is the church of our day or the church in our nation like this? Well, I think we've come to accept that in order to redeem the world, it was necessary that our Lord would suffer. But I'm not sure yet we're yet at the place where we see any purpose or, or place or necessity or any good that could come out of our own suffering. So maybe you look at Jesus' suffering and it produces worship. Maybe it's gratitude or appreciation. But when you look at your own tough times of life, do you think that God could redeem those? That God could act redemptively through your suffering as he did through Christ's suffering? That he could be involved? I've heard people say, I never signed up for this. And that's the way these disciples felt like. They had, a, they just expected this is going to be an ever upward growing trajectory. Just going to be bigger crowds, more miracles, more glory. And when their Lord did not do things their way, they checked out. Felt the emotional impact of that. The sadness that comes through disconnection. And despondency. I've come to think we did sign up for this. Of course we signed up for this. The symbol of our faith is a cross after all. 
How could we not follow a savior who suffered in order to redeem us and not think that he could redeem our own pain and suffering? Make some sense of it and bring some good out of it. This is the story of the resurrection. He suffered. Everybody thought it was done. He rose from it and triumphed over it. He triumphed over death by dying. Over suffering by suffering. God worked the greatest miracle, the single greatest miracle of the entire human race, the human history of the world and he did that miracle through suffering. So somehow if we're if we don't have a theology of suffering, if somehow it doesn't fit into our scheme of things, then every time something difficult happens, we're always gonna feel robbed. Like it's somehow it's something very unchristian that's happening to us. We're going to feel like if I was a real Christian, if I really figured this Christianity anything out, I wouldn't suffer. I wouldn't have hardship anymore because it would give me a card out. So maybe we're, we're not so unlike these disciples as we think. And, and, and I see... Uh, as though looking into a mirror, I see images uh, of myself, certainly myself five or 10 years ago. When I, when I look at them, Lord, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening again? Don't you know that I've had more than enough of my fair share of these things? And so I've had some wonderful talks with the Lord where the words of this page have jumped out. Todd, was it not necessary? Was it not necessary that there's some suffering that occurs before glory? Oh my goodness, what medicine for my soul. And so I prayed, Lord, then redeem. I'll give you all my tough parts of my story, and I'm going to ask you to redeem them. Because I look at the cross and see redemption written all over. I'm here today because Jesus suffered. Redeem my story. And oh, the wonders he has worked through that simple little prayer. Couple more thoughts very quickly because I, uh, Lawrence asked me to keep it under two hours. So I, I will kind of hurry along here. The very next word, the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Here's the third thing that took their hearts from sad to burning. These sad disciples knew what had happened, but they did not know why it had happened. They interpreted Jesus' death to mean that they had hoped in vain, that he really wasn't the Messiah. 
that everything that they had done for the last three years was, was empty. That's how they interpreted Jesus' death. They interpreted it wrongly. And a wrong interpretation of things will always produce sadness and a lack of hope. And so Jesus, in great love, provides them with a different interpretation of things, a truer interpretation of things. We would even say a heavenly interpretation of things, a holy interpretation, a divine interpretation of things, a godly interpretation of things. Because surely heaven saw this story differently than they did. This has been a vitally important truth in my own Christian life. That the sadness I experience has less to do with what has happened to me and more to do with the way I've interpreted it. And so over the years, as I've grown in my discipleship, I have asked the Lord, please give me your interpretation on this. Lord, how do you see this? And if my interpretation has generated sadness in my heart, invariably, when I have gained his interpretation of things, it has generated hope and joy in my heart. But do you see how there has to be an openness of heart? Not a resistance, but a deep openness of heart to receive his interpretation, the way he sees things. And so the disciples look at the crucifixion as it's done. We lost. All the wrong forces triumphed. And heaven is looking at the exact same moment. As we won, the victory is won, it's finished. Triumph has been gained. Same experience could not have been interpreted in more dramatically different ways. And that's what the gospel will always do. It will show you how God thinks upon you. How God loves you. It will always give you hope. show you the, the redemption that he would wish to bring out of tough things. Find the thing that most saddens you and ask the Lord to give you his interpretation of it, the way that he looks upon that. And something will shift inside of you. When I let the Lord provide me with his heavenly interpretation of things, my heart finds so much strength and cheer in that. And notice, he interpreted them in all the scriptures. I want to say something to you all, that in the Christian faith, if you want to be true to our faith, the Holy Scriptures have a critically important place. 
never underestimate in the life of the Christian the important place that the Bible plays. You will not grow without being able to become familiar with God's word. You're just not going to grow. And you will become subject to all the wrong interpretations of things constantly. And so when I became a new Christian, I'm so thankful that older Christians taught me, Todd, as a new Christian, if you want to grow, you're going to need to learn to pray and you're going to need to learn the Bible and to hear it as God's voice to you. So from the age of 15, I woke up every single morning. I had a half an hour in the Holy Scriptures and I had a half an hour in prayer until that grew to many hours. I am so thankful that the church, which is our mother, God is our father, but he put us into the care of the church. I'm so glad that the church nurtured me and told me things that would be to my benefit. And so what Jesus did was take them through the scriptures. And it was the Jesus through the scriptures that interpreted things differently for them. And so disciples, disciples of Christ, be in Holy Scripture daily. It will guard you and protect you. It will protect your mind. It will act like a helmet of salvation. It will protect you from wrong ways of of, of seeing life. And it will keep your heart in good cheer. And again, we're out of time now. But of course, always wed together is the Holy Scriptures and the Holy Sacraments. Notice the way they work together in the passage. That's why the church offers a ministry of word and sacrament. Word and table. And it was as he broke bread, as he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, he chose to reveal himself to them in a distinctly sacramental way. So we're not just a, you know, we're Anglican. We're not just a church that happens to do communion. We're a church that believes this story. All the ways that Jesus could have taken the veil away from their eyes and revealed himself. The question is, where did he choose to do that? Remember the story starts, their eyes were closed. They could not recognize it. Where, at what moment in the story did he pull that veil away? That is a hugely significant question. And it was in the breaking of bread We could say this, the first communion after the resurrection. He chose to reveal himself there. The way of saying that their faith from that point on would forever be deeply sacramental. How had they related to him before that? In a physical form, in a bodily form. raised from the dead in a physical way the physicality of the resurrection it wasn't a mystical resurrection it was a physical resurrection 
So thereafter, Christ would continue to meet with his church through the physicality of the sacraments. So when someone says, oh, you're just a church that does communion, or like, no, you, you misunderstand. We do this because this is how Jesus reveals himself to people. Take them to the, to, to the story of Emmaus. Tell them we prioritize this because our Lord prioritized it. That not only that, and, and that affects how we participate in communion. What we expect is going to happen when we go there. How we engage. And so this beautiful story ends with these two men, two disciples. They're no longer in doubt. They're no longer in despair. The Lord has risen indeed. They no longer think that that is incredulous. Their hearts aren't closed any longer or, or slow to believe the truth. The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. They believe it now. Then they told what had happened to them on the road and how Jesus made himself known to them in the breaking of the bread. Like you know. Just bow your head in just a brief word of prayer with me. I don't think you can hear uh, uh, and, and read a passage like this without wanting to follow suit. And so in this brief moment, a word of prayer, that you would ask the Lord Jesus to do for your heart what he did for theirs. You may not think of your heart as sad, but it might feel some other unpleasant thing. It might feel isolated. It might feel disconnected from God or people. It might feel quite alone. It might just feel flat. Not hopeful or despondent, but just kind of flat. I don't want to tell you how your heart should feel. I want us to be able to tell Jesus how our heart feels. I want us to be able to talk with him about it. To converse with him. To let him listen. And ask him to do 
for your heart what he did for theirs. Not to cut short a process, but to involve himself in the process. If there's a miracle I'm asking the Lord for is that we don't have to wait for COVID to be finished before our hearts burn for Jesus. The state of my heart is not dependent on the state of the nation. It is dependent on the climate of heaven. I want to breathe the fresh air of heaven and not wait that my heart will improve once a pandemic is finished. That's a miracle I'm asking for. The Jesus church would be alive and well that the heart of his people would be flourishing and full of the resurrection. Even when we are living in difficult, strenuous times. Because our hearts are no longer dependent on the times in which we live, but they are dependent on the truths of Christ and of heaven. We can breathe in the stale air of our times, or we can breathe in the fresh air of heaven. Lord, show me where my heart is closed to your truth. May it, where it's not as welcoming of your light and truth as I thought it was. Forgive me when, when you're trying to offer me help and I'm unknowingly reticent. Where I, where I push back. Even as I pray and talk about having a heart that's not dependent on the state of the nation, part of Christians think, oh, that's just idealistic, Todd. There's pushback. That you, part of us finds it hard to believe you could live in really troubling times and, 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 and yet have a heart that wasn't weighed down by those times. So of course you're not going to move in that direction if your heart's resistant to it. You don't even think it's possible. And of course you're not going to believe the resurrection. You're going to think it's incredulous. Todd, he's so incredulous. Spouting these ideals. Of course, I'm living in the pandemic too, and I feel the, the pressure of it. But when I do, I want to go to my Lord. And I have other forces act on my soul. Have heaven's forces act upon me. What a glorious antidote. Oh. 
Oh, I want to see a church end up in revival just as a pandemic comes to an end, not because it's coming to an end, so that we are ready to meet the needs of our community that need to talk and they need people to listen and they need people to, to, to be able to tell their sad to. And revival only comes one way by Christians who meet the resurrected Jesus and his life becomes ours.